Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. The Trump administration's executive orders have caused confusion among immigrants here in the U.S. and those looking to enter. But what about the officials in charge of enforcing immigration law? No, it's still the same job. The only thing is right now they're actually enforcing the laws they were sworn to enforce instead of just not enforcing the laws. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Today, a look inside what's clear and what's still unclear about U.S. immigration policy and policing. And we'll find out what the vetting process for refugees really looks like. Where are you from? Where exactly you ran from? And what are the causes that made you run? I mean, there are a lot of questions over and over again. Plus, Puerto Ricans are American citizens, and many go back and forth between New England and the island all the time. But do they always feel like Americans? Man, you're hitting hard. <laughs> Sometimes. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, Puerto Rican identity in a small New England city. You know, back in Puerto Rico, I'm white. You know, and I have this white privilege, and I think a lot of people back home, they don't know how Puerto Ricans are treated here and how we are seen and how we're not going to be treated the same way as we are back home. We'll hear from NPR's Code Switch team. But first, Donald Trump's first executive orders on immigration included a temporary ban on travel from seven majority Muslim countries. It was challenged by many states and was suspended after a legal battle. His new order is meant to achieve the same goals while passing legal muster. New England lawyers are lining up to fight it, though. Victoria Roque is one of them. She's from the Worker and Immigrant Rights Advocacy Clinic at Yale University. We believe that the second executive order is still a Muslim ban. It does not erase a long string of anti-Muslim comments by President Trump. And we do not believe that it is immune to court challenges. Here to help us understand what the new executive order means for New England states is Shannon Dooling. She covers immigration for the New England News Collaborative and WBUR Boston. Shannon, welcome back to Next. Thanks, John. First of all, tell us about the key differences between this executive order and what had been issued by the administration previously. Right. So there are a few key differences. First, it removes Iraq from the list of predominantly Muslim countries whose citizens will not be allowed entry into the U.S. So still on that list are uh, Syria, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, Iran and Sudan. Um, it also does not apply to visa and green card holders or dual citizens from those countries. Uh, so those folks will be allowed entry into the U.S. Um, you'll probably recall that this was at stake in the federal court case here in Boston, um, the entry of green card holders into uh, into the country. So that appears to have been addressed in this version. Um, it, it also sort of changes the uh, ramifications for Syrian refugees 
refugees, um, they will be treated just like any other refugees at this point, which is to say they'll be temporarily barred from entry into the U.S. for 120 days as the refugee admission program is halted. Um, But they are no longer barred indefinitely, which was um, a big sticking point for people in the first version of the executive order. And interestingly, this ban does not go into effect immediately, as did the previous order, which, of course, led to most of the chaos and confusion that we saw at airports around the country. Uh, This order goes into effect on March 16th. So any refugees that are already formally scheduled for travel to the U.S. will be allowed uh, to enter as well. This executive order cuts by more than half the number of refugees expected to come into the United States. That's something that I know a lot of people who are involved in the refugee resettlement world are very concerned about. And Shannon, you've been spending a lot of your time talking to people who try to resettle uh, refugees here in New England. What are they telling you? Yeah, of course, they're concerned. Um, They're concerned for their clients, of course. These are refugees who spend two to four years on average trying to make it to the U.S. Um, It's a very um, extensive vetting process, especially from countries like Syria that do have added uh, steps to that process for security reasons. I spoke earlier with Jeff Thielman. He's the CEO of the International Institute of New England. It's a refugee resettlement agency Uh, that resettles people in Massachusetts and also in Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, He mentioned, you know, plenty of concerns. Um, One that I found particularly interesting is, you know, he often receives employment requests for both skilled and entry-level positions around New England um, from companies that are looking to fill jobs. And he's very concerned uh, that this temporary uh, halt to the refugee admissions program will uh, really have a, a negative impact on that pipeline for 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 employers here in New England. Of course, these travel bans for those outside the country are just a part of the administration's overall immigration crackdown. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer said last month that President Trump wanted to empower immigration enforcement agents to fully do their jobs in finding those living in the country without legal status. The president wanted to take the shackles off um, individuals in these agencies and say, you have a mission, there are laws that need to be followed, you should do your mission and follow the law. Immigrant communities, in the meantime, are living in fear of being rounded up by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. Shannon, you you found someone who helped you understand a bit how ICE agents do and view their jobs. Who, Who is he and where did you meet him? I did. Um, His name is Albert Orlowski, uh, and he is a retired ICE agent. He lives in Dartmouth, Massachusetts, but he actually uh, performed a lot of his tasks on the fugitive operations team um, out of Rhode Island. So he had lots of uh, anecdotes, lots of experience around New England. And we actually met in a sports bar in Randolph, Massachusetts, kind of a midway point between uh, Dartmouth and Boston, Mass. He had some, some very interesting insight and um, it, it's not a perspective that we hear from a lot, um, but you know, as we're sitting at the bar on a on a weekday afternoon, um, he really opened up a lot about uh, what his experiences were as an ICE agent in New England. Over 25 years of federal law enforcement, 21 in immigration, ICE. Just the term ICE evokes emotion. Three letters emblazoned on the back of a dark jacket and nondescript white vans. They're images synonymous with fear. ICE agents seek out so-called targets and often use the element of surprise. The role is inherently boogeyman-esque. Sitting at the bar, the neatly dressed Orlowski orders a pint of his favorite beer, Yingling. I ask him, what's it like to enter a home, 
searching for someone you could play a role in deporting. Well, you act uh, professional, and of course you try to be as humane as possible. You, you try to, you know, try to get that situation as low-key as possible. I would try to avoid any situation where I knew there was a child in the house. I would wait. It's the last thing I wanted to do, traumatize a young kid. But not everyone felt like that, I'm assuming. That's the way I felt. I'm, I'm not responsible for anybody else. I go home at the end of the day. I don't care what these people do. I went home at the end of the day with a good conscience. Orlowski says he had 100% discretion as an agent, and his mentality was get in, get your target, and get out. But he says that's certainly not the case for every agent. Basically, there's usually one agent, one officer who's in charge of the operation. We basically do what he tells us to do. Like I say, when I was in charge, I made it perfectly clear. We go in, get what we came for, and leave. Nope, no stragglers, no extra baggage. Other people like to interview other candidates. We'd interview them, and then we'd get out whenever we could. Orlowski tells a story of accompanying a younger agent. Once they were in the target's house, the younger agent wanted to interview other people he suspected were in the country illegally. Eventually, the two of them were outnumbered, and tempers were running high. We stood in there too long, and the thing almost got out of hand. It got to the point where, like, we were surrounded. Now what do you do? That's why I learned my lesson. I only get burned once. Listening to the 59-year-old Orlowski speak about his experiences as an ICE agent reveals some interesting dynamics. At times, he laughs, recalling stories about far-flung assignments. Other times, he answers a complicated legal question with a dry accuracy that only comes from working in the field for 20 years. Still, at other points, he stares off, talking about young children clutching his leg, crying and begging him not to take their family. He stiffens a bit when speaking into the microphone, explaining how he believes ICE agents will respond to Trump's new priorities for deportation. I think they'll be a lot more aggressive now due to the fact that there's more people in the pool to apprehend, more can, more potential candidates out there. Has their job changed at, at the most basic level? No, still the same job. The only thing is right now they're actually enforcing the laws they were sworn to enforce instead of just not enforcing the laws. Trump's executive orders on immigration have brought renewed focus on the role of individual ICE agents, like Orlowski. Depending on how you read the guidance from Department of Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly, you could say that instead of broadening the priorities for deportation, the executive order essentially stripped away priorities altogether, making almost any non-citizen vulnerable for deportation. Former Boston Immigration Court Judge Eliza Klein says ICE agents have always had a certain amount of discretion in the field, and that doesn't necessarily change with these new priorities. So you have some ICE officers who are like, I really want to follow the law. You know, I was hired as a law enforcement officer, basically, and I want to enforce this the way it's written. (laughs) And then you have others who are like, you know, man, I mean, I don't want to see these family members suffer. Um, So there will be some individual determinations. And even though agents may have always made these individual determinations, the fear right now among immigrants in the country illegally is tangibly different. Clinical professor at Boston University's Immigrants' Rights Clinic, Sarah Sherman Stokes, says uneven enforcement from community to community and this newfound bravado among agents terrifies many immigrants. Because there is a sort of unpredictability, um, or or maybe better put, the only thing that's predictable is um, a heightened degree of aggressive enforcement, then the impact is fear. Fear of going to the doctor, fear of going to school, and fear of going to work. 
Asked about how the new guidelines affect an ICE agent's day-to-day duties, the Department of Homeland Security declined to comment, saying they would allow the executive orders to speak for themselves. That's Shannon Dooling reporting. She's back with us now. So, Shannon, for you, what is next? What's the next thing you're looking at as you cover this unfolding story about immigration and these executive orders? So, of course, we're going to be keeping a a close eye on how these executive orders are implemented in our local communities here in Massachusetts and throughout New England. Um, And, of course, on March 16th, when this revised travel order officially goes into effect, you know, we'll keep an eye on airports and um, we'll keep in touch with lawyers. And, and just sort of gauge how this rollout goes the second time around. Shannon Doolin covers immigration for WBUR Boston and also the New England News Collaborative. Shannon, thanks so much. Thanks, John. President Trump has talked repeatedly about the need for extreme vetting of refugees and other immigrants coming from majority Muslim countries. But what does that vetting process look like right now? Fred Bever has the account of one refugee who came to Maine from Africa this past September. When Charles fled the ethnic violence that killed his parents in his native city of Bunya in the Democratic Republic of Congo, he was around 11 or 12 years old. He doesn't remember exactly. Now 20, Charles spent almost half his life in the teeming Changwali refugee camp in Uganda. He was safe and it was not good. He was safe, but not good because, I mean... It was quite live. It was very hard life. He traveled with his aunt named Love and his grandmother Cecile. It was a relief to get to the Uganda camp, he says, but it wasn't really a home. Things were not that very good. Food, shelter, water. I mean, shelter was sometimes you know you're put in a room without a roof. So most of the nights we used to sleep when it's raining on us. He's asked that we not use his last name due to continued concern about safety for himself and his family. Within the first three months, Charles says workers from the United Nations High Commission for Refugees interviewed him and his family separately for certification as refugees and as potential candidates for resettlement abroad. The U.N. only refers for resettlement a small percentage of the world's refugees, those it considers most vulnerable to war, violence, or other harms. And refugees themselves cannot make the applications. It's the U.N.'s choice based on the information they can confirm about the refugees. Charles says local U.N. staff sought the truth of his story, matching it to records from the Congo and cross-checking it against what his relatives and others told them about what happened there. Where are you from? Where exactly you ran from? And what are the causes that made you run? For what reason did you run out of where you are? And whom were you living with? What happened to them? Where are they? How old are you? What happened? In what time? What dates? What hours of the day did the circumstances that happened? And all that. I mean, there are a lot of questions over and over again. Charles says he was interviewed by the UN three times in the first nine months. They took fingerprints and did medical checks as well, a process repeated at least once a year for eight years. It wasn't until 2014 that the High Commission for Refugees decided to recommend him and his relatives for resettlement abroad. As with most international refugees processed through the U.N., Charles had no say over what country he would be recommended to, and he says he didn't hold a preference as long as it was a safe place to build a new life. As he learned, it would be the U.S. And they told us, like, you know, if America accepts you, we'll have a lot more interviews for you, 
we will have a lot more paperwork for you, we will have a lot of fingerprints for you, we will have a lot of injections and all medical stuff for you, so get ready for it. And Charles says that's exactly what happened as a U.S.-funded resettlement support center started up its own vetting regimen from scratch. That meant interagency screenings with Charles's biographical information reviewed and checked against databases kept by the National Terrorism Center, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, and the State Departments. According to guidance originally put out by the administration of former President Obama and still available online, refugees from Syria go through several extra screens, and the information for all potential refugees is rechecked as databases are updated. If no evidence emerges that the applicant is a security risk, no connections to known bad actors, for example, or outstanding arrest warrants, the applicant is cleared for the next step. More interviews by the U.S. Customs and Immigration Services. They told us, we've interviewed you, you've done everything, but we're not the one making decisions. It's made from our, the big people beyond us, the one who decide whether you're becoming in or not. Once the biographical information checked out, Charles says he and his family went through a new round of fingerprinting to be screened against various databases run by Homeland Security, the FBI, and the Department of Defense. Any doubts raised along the way can derail a refugee's admittance to the U.S., but for Charles, Love, and Cecile, there were never any red flags, and one day an agent delivered them a letter. Saying that we've been accepted after they've done all their reviews, and, and then we knew that we were going to America. Late last summer, they arrived at JFK Airport, then headed to a place they'd never heard of, Maine. As with most refugees to the U.S., Charles's case was turned over to a non-governmental organization, in his case, Catholic Charities of Maine, which spokeswoman Judy Katzel says spends three months helping families adapt. And then begin that process of learning how to get around, how to go shopping, what the, the money, the currency is, how to ride a bus, um, if there are English classes, um, you know, where people need to be enrolled, if there are young children, do they need to be enrolled in the school system? You know, I mean, our goal is to, is to help refugees become self-sufficient within that 90-day window. Last week, Catholic Charities took over all stateside administrative responsibility for refugees resettled in Maine as the state dropped its share of those duties. That's Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever reporting. You can hear more from our series covering immigration and the demographic shifts in New England called Facing Change on our website, nextnewengland.org. Coming up, they're not immigrants, they're American citizens, and they make up the heart of some of New England's biggest cities. We'll explore Puerto Rican identity next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. 
March 2nd marked the 100th anniversary of the Jones Act, which granted U.S. citizenship to people born on the island of Puerto Rico. Today, there are more Puerto Ricans living on the mainland than on the island, which is in the midst of an economic crisis. In the 1960s and 70s, a large group of Puerto Ricans moved to Holyoke, Massachusetts, where they found work in factories and nearby tobacco fields. Now Holyoke's home to the highest per capita concentration of Puerto Ricans in the United States. NPR reporter Shireen Marisol Miraji paid a visit to Holyoke for the Code Switch podcast to explore what the Jones Act has meant for Puerto Ricans living stateside. So welcome to Holyoke. Thank you. Uh, I'm so happy you're here. I'm so happy to be here. Oh my God, I'm like nervous, excited, but happy. My Boricuanes, you know? I'll feel right at home. Yes, okay, perfect. Nelson Roman so is the first person I meet up with in Holyoke. Picture a really hyper, really huggable Puerto Rican teddy bear. As soon as I arrive, he's driving me through South Holyoke in his beat-up Nissan, Uber sticker on the front windshield, Santeria beads hanging from his rearview mirror. I'm only one or two ceremonies away from full Santero. My life is so busy, so I don't have the time. I'm surprised he had any time for me. Nelson has three jobs. Uber driver, a volunteer coordinator at a soup kitchen, and the job most germane to this story, Holyoke City Council member. A job that keeps his phone ringing constantly. Look at that, look at that. Oh, sorry, come permiso. So when the fire victims, I gotta answer. Hold on a second. Aida, mami, como esta? Nelson's 29, and he reps Ward 2 in Holyoke. His constituency is nearly all Puerto Rican, and the median income is around $14,000 a year. This is his first term in office, and he loves to say he's got nothing to hide, and that's how he ran his campaign, and won. He told everyone he was gay, HIV positive, formerly homeless, and a proud Puerto Rican. Not necessarily in that order. Right now, Nelson Roman's on the phone with one of his constituents, a victim of an apartment fire, hoping to find temporary housing. She's worried she's going to end up on the streets. And as they're talking and we're driving, I'm looking out the passenger side window onto piles of snow and giant red brick factory buildings that are empty. And I can't imagine sleeping on the streets here in the freezing cold. This neighborhood is like the exact opposite of Puerto Rico. But to the effervescently positive Nelson... To me, it's the center of the universe because of the Puerto Rican diaspora. I'm devastated we're going to lose that number one title to Florida. Um, <laughs> Very soon in the 2020 census. 20, oh my God, you don't even know. I want If I could do an ad campaign, Boricuas, come to Holyoke, I would. Um, but we're losing it. Look, we have so many beautiful domino clubs and, and associations here in Holyoke. It's beautiful. And who was that baseball player on the side of Perfecto that? Clemente, como oh, no, Perfecto my Clemente. God. As we're driving around, Nelson points to all the things he loves about this place. Things that to him, represent the resilience of Puerto Ricans who came looking for opportunity, but found low-wage work, segregated schools, and discrimination. He points to the beautiful domino clubs where old guys talk smack and spanglish while smacking down dominoes. He drives me down a beautiful block with dilapidated brick row houses painted in tropical colors, and he stops the car in front of a faded but beautiful mural made by Puerto Rican kids years ago. This mural to the right is the Alcoides mural. They painted this mural, that Puerto Rican flag that's to the left. It's super long. It used to be a Puerto Rican and U.S. flag. The Puerto Rican flag started and it blended into the U.S. flag. The then mayor at the time came down and made this a campaign political issue and made a huge stink and got the news to say that the Puerto Ricans were trying to dominate the U.S. 
And so the kids were heartbroken. They just painted over the U.S. flag. It's now 100% the Puerto Rican flag. But think about that narrative, you know, in the Jones Act. So you come here to the U.S., you think you're a U.S. citizen, you have kids who are now in the neighborhoods, who are here, trying to integrate, trying to become part of the community and culture, and you're being shot down saying you're trying to overtake the U.S. or dominate? Like, how are you as a kid growing up supposed to feel? Un-American is the first word that comes to my mind. Domestic, yet foreign. From neither here nor there, but forced to choose sides. My name is Sofia Rivera. I am originally from Guaynabo, Puerto Rico. I'm currently a junior at Mount Holyoke College. Mount Holyoke College is in a tree-lined suburb right next to Holyoke. It's a women's college, one of the Seven Sisters, founded decades before Puerto Ricans got American citizenship. And I'm here in a grand old room in a grand old building with cathedral ceilings talking to Sophia. She totally fits the part of that East Coast university student with her fly winter boots, clear hipster glasses, and a sensible yet stylish bob. I have to admit, this scene is in stark contrast to my tour through Holyoke with Nelson. And Nelson and Sofia are different in so many ways. Sofia grew up in Puerto Rico and went to private school there. Nelson grew up in the States, was homeless in Holyoke, and has only been to the island five times. But they're both here, in western Massachusetts, thanks in part to the Jones Act. First, what do you know about the Jones Act? Uh, what don't I know? Um, it's what gave Puerto Ricans citizenship. I don't know. What are your feelings about that as a Puerto Rican who grew up in Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. which is very different than my experience as a yeah. Puerto Rican who grew up in the United States? Um, being American was always there, but it wasn't the first thing you thought about yourself. And more as now as a student here in the United States, um, kind of experiencing more of that American identity. Mm-hmm. You know, back in Puerto Rico, I'm white, you know, and I have this white privilege. And I think a lot of people back home, they don't know how Puerto Ricans are treated here and how we are seen and how we're not going to be treated the same way as we are back home. And you've seen that here? Yeah. Being here. I mean, tell me, like, give me some examples of where it's been, like, really eye-opening for you. You know, in the street, I've had people, I've been calling my mom and I talk to her in Spanish, of course, and people ask me that coded word, where are you from? And I say, oh, I'm from Puerto Rico. And like the changing of the visage of people and their perceptions of me afterward, it makes me feel really bad. Like it, it makes you feel less. And coming here and being racialized and being put as a person of color, but never having the experience of living as a person of color firsthand and being raised as a person of color and being marginalized. It's hard having to take your own prejudices and recognize that you had a privilege and that you don't. Sophia's girding herself for a life in the States as a person of color because she can't imagine herself surviving the economic crisis in Puerto Rico. If I go back home to work, my minimum wage will be four twenty-five an hour. We're fighting for 15, I'm fighting for $7. You know, neither of the two places are easy to live. Just because it's an island, it's not paradise, and just because they're living the statehood, the American dream, doesn't mean it's, it's actually a dream. A foot in both worlds it makes me much more empathetic of both narratives. I made my way back to the city center to talk to another person who gets both narratives. It is freezing here, and I am headed to City Hall, where I'm going to talk to Marcos Marrero, who does economic development here. 
Marcos grew up in Puerto Rico, lived there through undergrad, and now he's here with his wife and baby boy making a life in Holyoke. <coughs> Hi, I'm Shireen. Am I allowed to shake your hand? <laughs> well, I get, let's do fist bumps so you don't get... Yeah. So you don't get Marcos uh, blamed his kid for the cough. I blame the snow because, honestly, Puerto Ricans are not supposed to be living in the snow. Anyway, Marcos has been pushing some redevelopment projects that have some folks on edge. They're nervous that redevelopment is going to lead to gentrification in the Puerto Rican neighborhoods. Neighborhoods like the one Holyoke City Council member Nelson Roman represents. So my stance has been, I don't see the evidence of gentrification as of yet. Is it a threat? Absolutely. And it's something that we have to be mindful of as we craft policy going forward. He says he wants to make Holyoke a place that's also attractive to middle-class Puerto Ricans like himself, so they're not going to feel the need to move to the other side of the tofu curtain. Yeah, you heard that right. The tofu curtain. It's the metaphorical wall that separates the white liberal college towns from the browner and poorer cities like Holyoke and Springfield. And as if on cue, the very polished and professorial Marrero brings our conversation about displacement and gentrification right back to the Jones Act and the conundrum it created for Puerto Ricans. Ultimately, whether we're talking about Puerto Ricans in the States or Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico, we need a place to call home. What belongs to us? I mean, that's at the core of all this, right? We emanate from an island. We call it our home, but it's not ours. It is the property of the United States. We have citizenship based on the Jones Act, which allows us the freedom to migrate to the United States without barriers, right? We can legally work here. Yet so many of us come here, and what we've seen throughout history is that we've been excluded, marginalized, oppressed. And even when we do create those communities for all its flaws, whether it's low income, whether it's blight, whatever the condition may be, then when they're, they're improved and revitalized, then the threat is of being pushed out and excluded and marginalized again. So the question remains, what is our home? Where do we belong? Where do we belong? In the States or on the island? On which side of the tofu curtain even? The side where you can get arroz con habichuelas and pernil every day of the week? Or the side where crispy pork skin is rarely on a restaurant menu? I left Holyoke to visit someone who lives on the other side of the tofu curtain. She's from a very prominent family back in Puerto Rico. And when I called her to set up the interview, over the phone she jokingly referred to herself as a wise Latina. And at this point in my journey, I'm seriously craving a wise Latina's perspective. My name is Natalia Muñoz, and I'm a multimedia journalist, a bilingual and bicultural. I am also the granddaughter of Puerto Rico's first elected governor, Luis Muñoz Marín. What are you doing in this part of the world? I am part of the diaspora. I'm here because there is no work in my homeland. I would love to be back in Puerto Rico. And I'm, I'm not talking about whether, you know, it snows here. I'm not one of those people who says, oh, it's so cold. You know, in the mountains of Puerto Rico, it can get cold also. It's not weather, it's culture. I miss being in my language, in my food, in my weather, in my political mess, in my educational mess. I'm in, I feel that I'm in somebody else's mess. Mm. I've been dragged into. Do you consider yourself American? No, I've never considered myself American. I am an American citizen. I am Puerto Rican and I have American citizenship. Mm. I have tremendous privilege having that document over someone who has crossed the desert from wherever they came in Mexico or Latin America or Central America. And I treasure it. But it's a very complicated feeling. I am a descendant of people who were conquered. Not once, but twice. 
uh, first by the Spaniards. We were under their rule for about 400 years, and then under the Americans after the 1898 Spanish-American War. And sometimes I'm an angry Puerto Rican, and they, and sometimes I, I am a grateful Puerto Rican. It's a very difficult relationship that I have with the United States because nobody asked us. They didn't ask us in este, when the Jones Act was being written, do you guys in, in Puerto Rico, do you want to be American citizens? Because, you know, we're just offering it. And it's like, no. So este, being in the diaspora, it's a painful experience. That's, I think, the bottom line. This is a lifelong painful experience. It's a heartbreaking experience that we live with every single day. So far and yet so close to home. That was Shireen Marisol Maraji reporting for NPR's Code Switch podcast. You can find a link to Code Switch at our website, nextnewengland.org. The state of Rhode Island is about 14% Latino, and that population is growing, with Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, Guatemalans, and Colombians the largest Hispanic groups there. But the number of teachers certified to teach English language learners has not kept pace with the demand. Umbar Espinosa has our story. Okay, so before we left for music, we were wrapping up our math problem. Silvana Laramie has been teaching for nearly 25 years, and this is her fourth grade bilingual class at Alfred Lima Elementary School in Providence. These students are transitioning from learning only in Spanish to learning only in English. Can you explain what that means, Moises, that they gave it to us all together? First, they give it to us like in pieces, then, then in this problem, they give it all together like in a unit. All, all in one problem, yeah. yes. And what did you have to do? We need a round and... But Laramie still uses Spanish as a tool to support her students' learning. Um, we need a... You can say it in Spanish, I'll help you in English. Uh, lo que sumar. We have to add. Add them and... And we need to write how many pieces that, that they got. Moises is on fire, answering multiple questions in a row. Because that's the, that's the many pounds they took away. That's what they took away. Kiss your brain. Moises kisses his fingers and taps his head. He's one of a growing number of English language learners, or ELLs, in the Providence School District. Two-thirds of the district students are Latino. Within the past five years, the ELL population doubled to about 24%. While Laramie teaches math on one side of the classroom, her teaching partner teaches language arts on the other side of the classroom. That is actually our beginning group in English. So we have two children in that group that are just new arrivals to the country and two that actually arrived last year in the middle of the year. So she's really working on vocabulary development. You'll notice there's a lot of picture supports. The Providence School District offers different programs to help children learn English, including bilingual classes that are taught in English and Spanish, and traditional ESL classes that are taught primarily in English. This is the first year that the governor and the General Assembly included a small pot of money in the state budget to support English language learning services and hire more teachers. 
Providence Superintendent Chris Marr, says his district and several others that have large ELL student populations have partnered up with the Rhode Island Foundation and two local universities to subsidize an ELL teacher certification program, including courses online. But to be honest, it's a drop in the bucket compared to the need because we have a need for you know, hundreds, if not more, ELL teachers today, and we just don't have that in the pipeline anywhere. That's because becoming a certified ELL teacher takes time and money, two things that are difficult to come by as a full-time working teacher. They do get compensated by the district for the training, but the salary bump is only about $7 a week before taxes. Meanwhile, Marr says the state next door, Massachusetts, is mandating this training for any teacher who may have ELL students in the classroom. Marr says it's easy to compare ourselves to our neighbor, which has one of the best education programs in the country. Uh, and I worry that they're once ahead going to get out far ahead of us on educating this growing population of English language learners, and we are going to be stuck behind. And the places that are getting hard, hit the hardest are clearly the urban areas. Most of Providence's ELL student population is Latino, but in the last few years, the district has welcomed more than 200 refugee students from all over the world, students who speak languages that range from Arabic to Swahili. Mar says that diversity just makes the school district better. In Silvana Laramie's fourth grade classroom, My name is Cindy. Many students like Cindy have parents who don't speak English very well. Cindy says she relies on her older middle school brother to help her when she's stuck with her homework, but she can also reach Laramie from home if she needs to. Sometimes when I'm stuck in the homework, we use an app and it sends write a message to her. We could send her the picture of our homework and she gives them some clues and stuff like that for she could, for she could help us in our homework. Laramie says school districts with rapidly changing demographics need to hire more bilingual ELL teachers. But she says the need is bigger than that. More classrooms need teachers who are certified to teach English language learners. You know, even having regular education teachers understand the ELL needs because they're ELL children sitting in regular classrooms. They're in all classrooms. It's a big challenge. She calls it the hardest job, but at the same time, the most rewarding. Monticello. Monticello. That was Ambar Espinosa from Rhode Island Public Radio reporting. Coming up, how slaves in New England fought for their freedom in court. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. When you think about the words slavery and then president, I'll bet that one name pops into your head right away. Abraham Lincoln, who signed the Emancipation Proclamation freeing the slaves in 1863. Another president, Thomas Jefferson, might slip in there too for another reason. But what about the father of our country, George Washington? New Hampshire Public Radio's Hannah McCarthy brings us the story of Ona Judge, a runaway slave who evaded Washington himself and lived most of her life on New Hampshire's seacoast after gaining her freedom. Her story is not well known, but there are many who are working to keep Judge's history and the history of the black community in the city of Portsmouth alive. Ona Judge isn't a household name, but in 18th century Portsmouth, she was infamous. 
She was a slave of Martha Washington's, the First Lady's personal handmaid. So when Judge escaped from Philadelphia one May night, it didn't take long for word to reach her masters. The president's slave had been spotted in New Hampshire. Ona Judge gave a couple of interviews and left some correspondences behind, but there's a lot of conjecture in her story. Historian Erica Dunbar spent years researching the runaway for her book Never Caught. She says that Judge's decision provides insight into her conviction. When she made the decision to flee to New England, she gave up the knowledge that she would ever see her family again. That was a huge thing to let go of as a 22-year-old woman. And what she traded that in for was a life of uncertainty. New Hampshire was a strategic choice, but it wasn't Judge's choice. Once she decided to flee, she put her life in the hands of a well-connected free black community. They would have known that Boston and New York were out of the question for a slave from the most prominent household in the country. But Portsmouth was small and easily accessible. Judge could take a ship straight from Philadelphia. And the port city had abolitionist leanings and a large free black community. There, Judge could be protected. We can find in correspondence that she lodged or stayed with free blacks who helped her find employment, who helped her, uh, gave her a roof over her head and allowed her to try and put together a life for herself in Portsmouth. That life wasn't easy. Judge was a fugitive slave. Local newspapers ran daily ads for runaways and bounty hunters were always on the lookout. That and the president himself was searching for her. She spent most of her self-emancipation looking over her shoulder. She did domestic work for white families in Portsmouth and eked out a living. It was in stark contrast to the life that she would have lived in Martha Washington's company, according to Jerry Ann Bogus, director of the Black Heritage Trail in Portsmouth. She would rather die a free woman than live in the laps of luxury. And, and that's the other thing. It's the president's house. She didn't leave, you know, Mr. Who Knows What in Who Knows Where. She left the house of the presidency, the prestige of that. Driving around the city one cold February morning, Bogus imagines the Portsmouth of 200 years ago. Pulling up to the Strawberry Bank Museum, Bogus gestures to the frozen, gravelly ground. Buried a few feet below us is the original dock, where Judge would have disembarked after a five-day journey from Philly. From there, she would have been secretly welcomed into Portsmouth's black community. They had slave auctions actually right on dock sometimes. So it's part of this uncovering of the black history here. We drive past buildings that were once the homes of free blacks and onto the massive John Langdon house. Langdon was governor when Judge lived in Portsmouth, and he's often credited with warning her of Washington's hot pursuit. But Bogus has another idea. You just can't imagine that he would run out to find Ona wherever she is to say, hey, they're coming for you, you know? Mm -hmm. It's more than likely that... You know, the, the servants are hearing this and say, well, we've got to go and warn Ona that, hey, he's in town. You better keep a low profile. At the end of the day, standing by the African burial ground memorial, Bogus says that stories like Judges are a window into an unseen Portsmouth history. Mostly what I do is really connect the history to what's going on now and how, how this information really changes how we see New Hampshire, how we see New England, how we see America, you know. Valerie Cunningham, the founder of the Black Heritage Trail and author of Black Portsmouth, explains that their goal is to incorporate the black perspective into the history of Portsmouth. It's also not 
true to say that there is so little documentation of the black past. The documentation is there. It's just been overlooked because it has not been considered relevant or important. Uh, once you start looking, you, you find little clues and big clues all around, as they say, hidden in plain sight. Being hidden in plain sight is a metaphor for Ona Judge's own life, maintaining her anonymity while trying to lead a normal existence. The task now facing people like Cunningham is to coax Judge's story out of hiding. That's Hannah McCarthy reporting. Ona Judge's story helps us confront some hard truths about the history of slavery. Manisha Sinha's book, The Slave's Cause, does the same. The book tells the history of the abolition movement and was nominated last year for the National Book Award. Sinha's the Draper Chair in American History at the University of Connecticut. Welcome to Next. Thank you for having me. First of all, let me ask you what it is that we get wrong about the movement to abolish slavery in the U.S. All the history books tell us one story, but your book has a, has a slightly different story about this. Yes, we normally think of abolition as occurring because of the passage of some laws or judicial decisions handed down. We do not really uh, look at the role of the enslaved themselves in the process of emancipation. So when I looked at how emancipation came about in the New England states, I found that, in fact, enslaved people had played a very important role in in pushing the movement towards abolition, and in many cases were crucial to instigating abolition. Could you give us an example of how African Americans played a crucial role in the New England states, maybe specifically Massachusetts? Yes, so Massachusetts is very interesting because um, two slaves, Quark Walker and Mumbet, sued for their freedom. And their cases went right up to the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. And it was those decisions that interpreted the state constitution of Massachusetts as abolishing slavery that led to the abolition of slavery in 1783. We normally do not pay sufficient attention to these forgotten sort of unsung heroes of emancipation like Elizabeth Freeman, as she named herself, renamed herself, Mumbet, and Quark Walker, who had actually initiated that process. At what point in history was slavery in New England most common? So in the colonial era, all the New England states recognized slavery. Massachusetts was the first to do so. And they did not have some of those elaborate slave codes of the South. The difference was that because of certain aspects of Puritan law, there were certain ways in which the enslaved could take advantage of the law to make freedom claims. So already in the colonial era, we have instances of Africans suing for their freedom on the charge that they had been kidnapped from Africa, which is condemned in the Bible as man-stealing. And some of them actually won their cases. But it is really during the revolutionary era when we have more and more instances of enslaved people, including women, suing for their freedom. How did the Revolutionary War affect the abolitionist movement in New England? We have a notion that somehow in the revolution with ideas about liberty and equality becoming prevalent, uh, that somehow these ideas got applied to enslaved people in New England. And that is not entirely true, because even when the patriots are fighting for their own liberty, many of them show no qualms in enslaving people of African descent. It really took African-Americans to 
uh, point out the discrepancy, point out the paradox and the contradictions between claiming to love liberty and oppressing others, enslaving others, that made a difference. So, for instance, Phyllis Wheatley, one of the first black women to be published, in fact, she is one of the first American women to be ever published, she uh, wrote in a letter that was widely reprinted in New England newspapers saying, you know, how well the cry for liberty and the reverse dispossession for oppressing others agree, I humbly think it will not take the, you know, acumen of a philosopher to discern. You call your chapter on abolition in the North the long emancipation. Why do you think it took so long? Why was it so gradual? Well, part of it was because many of these states that implemented emancipation were very uh, careful about not violating what they thought as slaveholders' rights to property. Historians normally explain emancipation in the North by saying, well, the North was not that invested in slavery, and therefore it was easier for the North to abolish slavery than the Southern states. But the fact remains that even in the North, uh, you had elites who were slaveholding. Uh, you had substantial interests in slaveholding among merchants uh, and sometimes farmers, as in the Narragansett Valley, in Rhode Island, in Connecticut, uh, in, in upstate New York. And these people resisted the movement towards emancipation. So many northern states passed what we call gradual emancipation laws that did not really free the enslaved, but freed the children of the enslaved, and then freed them only when they reached majority. Each state had its own sort of year where they would free slaves. You had to be 21 or 28 or 25, and depending whether you were a man or a woman. And in many times, it took abolitionist and black activism to make sure that these laws were enforced, that slaveholders didn't try to get around them by, by selling uh, children of slaves down south, as in fact happened to Sojourner Truth, who was a slave in New York. Uh, her son was illegally sold to Alabama, and she had to bring suit to recover him. Manisha Sinha is author of The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Kyone Wolf. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.